Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. She's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about now, now to talk about. She's taking care of her voice, so you know that she's not gonna shout now. Shout now, she's not gonna shout. So get your headphones ready to hear what it's all about. Sound now, when it's all about. We'll have no fun, no fun, cause your purpose podcast comes out today. We'll have no fun, 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 cause your purpose podcast comes out today. No Fun, the Jen Kirkman Podcast, episode three. Hang on, 3.55. Coming at you in this last week of September. I am Jen Kirkman. I am a comedian. I have two Netflix specials. I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. And just keep living. I also am an author of two books. I'm too lazy to say the names. Just look it up on Amazon. Oh my God, that's so corporate. I'll look it up with the book deposit. (laughs) Look it up where JFK was killed. All right, listen to me. This is my podcast. This is not a stand-up special, so you are not going to hear jokes. I am not interviewing people. This is just me talking about what's been going on in my life, in my head, in the world. It's as boring as all the other podcasts. And that's what I want to give you people is some free entertainment where someone's just talking to you and you're like, oh, I'll kind of listen when I do my dishes. I like her. I like this girl. That's you getting into this podcast. There is also a Patreon version where you can see the video version of it. I've got a nice fluorescent sign that says no fun. Why wouldn't you pay five bucks a month to look at that? I call the video version is almost like a, uh, I don't know. It's almost like getting an hour of a loose stand-up special every week. And in the video version, I do a little more material up front, a little more talking up front. 
I've already been talking to the Patreon people on video before I hit record and before you heard me say, episode three, what is it? And then every week, there is a 20-minute bonus episode, which is accessible depending on how much you pay per month, 5, 10, 15, or 20. The levels go up from there, giving you more bonuses, sometimes in the merch uh, area. So patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. I will not be on tour in 2020, and I have just canceled my gigs for 2021. So this is it, folks. During a pandemic that is not ending, I am here in my home office talking to you. And trust me, I think I think to me this is the it's not the same as going out to see me on tour. But I, I take this very seriously, and I love it as much as stand-up. So here we go. This week, what are we talking about? I went and got another haircut for you regular listeners. You know that I risked it all to get a haircut two weeks ago and then realized I don't like the haircut I got, so I went back to a different place. Well, that doesn't even make sense, back to a different place. I went to a different place. I'll talk about, I taped an episode, I taped six episodes of a game show this week and how that works in COVID times. I will be talking about some listener emails. I'll be talking about a cigarette machine. What? Yeah, you'll see. And I'll be talking just real quick, real briefly about my experiences in comedy clubs that don't think it's a problem to book people who have been accused of or admitted to sexual assault allegations. <gasps> controversial. She's so controversial. <gasps> and I'm going to read an article called I don't want to read your fucking script. I don't know why. I think it's an interesting article for people who are trying to get in the business and uh, tell you the way not to do that. And so what else can I tell you about? Oh, so, and I think I may, I don't know if I have any overly funny stories of talking to my parents lately. I mean, I talk to them every week, but I don't remember if anyone said anything overtly funny. I can't really remember. So there you go. Is there any better feeling than getting a haircut that you don't like and you realize it once you get home? But the And then you go talk shit about that hairdresser with a new one that gets you. I don't know if there's any better feeling. And then having them go, oh yeah, what are they? What did they do? This looks terrible. There's no better feeling. I don't. It's so redemptive. Is that a word? And I'm sorry if you don't have any hair. If you used to have hair, did, did this ever happen to you, Jen? I never had hair. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, well, you. Then I don't know. Maybe there's another experience that you can have with this. Maybe like a car that you bought. Some mechanic worked on it and it sucked and you took it to another mechanic and they were like, this guy didn't know what he was doing. So as you all know, and if you don't, you can go back and listen to an episode a couple weeks ago. I went to get a haircut. I couldn't take it anymore. My hair was so long. I felt like, I don't know. I just felt 
not that cool. My first instinct was to say a mom, but why would I say that? Moms are cool. There's cool moms. I guess I just mean, I don't know what I mean by that. Look at, you know, because moms are always like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. I don't make time to do my hair. So I looked like someone who wasn't making time to do the hair. Again, I get we're in a pandemic. But I also looked like someone who doesn't take time to take care of her hair, but who also was trying to go for some Jennifer Aniston long hair highlight beachy look. And I love that look for others. I don't like it for myself. My hair was just getting too long. I kept playing with bleach and it was not giving me the desired result. And I looked like, I don't know, some kind of normal person. Now I say that fully aware that I'm pretty normal, not that cool. But you know, we all see ourselves a certain way in our heads. And I hate when, that's why I hate when people get it wrong. When people are like, oh, you want a Joan Jett haircut? No, I don't want to look like Joan Jett. That's too harsh. It's too much of a look. I'm trying to look like either, this is how I, okay, by the way, anyone can take this audio and they can make a fool of me. When I say how I see myself, I don't mean actually this is what I think. It's that like, it's my dream. But like, let me live in my own bubble of a head where I go, yeah, this is how I want to see myself, which is two different looks. One is androgynous model. And the other one is male rock star, male rock star, like the Mick Jagger kind of hair or uh, I don't even know what, but I don't want to do my hair that short. And I don't have, he's got uh, curls that I don't have. So if I went that short, I know if people are watching the video version, my hair looks wavy. I did that with a curling art. So that's how I, so when people go, you look like Joan Jack, it's the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I know it doesn't seem like it's the opposite, but I don't want to have jet black hair. And I don't want to look 80s. I want to look 70s and timeless and like, I don't know. So that's how I see myself. <laughs> it's not exactly how I come off. But the one thing I don't want to look like is like, I don't know, like, hello, I'm an adult woman with long beachy waves hair. So I got it cut. And this woman was cocky as fuck, which I appreciate. But then at the end of the haircut, she goes, oh, I am so good at my job. And I remember flagging that and going, I wonder if I'm going to hate this when I get home. And then I got home and I was like, she didn't even, I'm trying to grow out these goddamn bangs. You guys have been on this journey with me. And, you know, they're not hitting my, they're about hitting my chin now. But I need everything to be like right above my collarbone. The rest of my hair is. So when I got the first haircut, I said, listen, I'm going to need you to cut everything off. And I I want my hair to kind of slope forward shorter in the back. She did the opposite. And I didn't notice it until a few days later. Because first I got home and then went into a panic that I'd gone inside to a hair salon. Because I went there. Because they said they had an outside, and then I got there, and they're like, the outside's closed today. So anyway, you all know that story already. So anyway, I got to fix this. I got to fix this now. I hate this. So I Googled around, and I found a little hair salon 
that has an outdoors. And I called, I talked to the woman and I said, I am dead serious. There's got to actually be an outside. I've already been through this. She's like, nope, I've got immune issues. My whole family does. I'm careful. I haven't gone anywhere. I wear a shield. I wear this. I go, okay, great. So I get to the salon. It is exactly as advertised. She took my temperature. We did contactless touch, touchless hand sanitizer. She's wearing a shield and a mask. I've got a mask with a filter in it. We're good. And she mostly gets it done what I wanted to do. So I will be going back to her. But she told me something that I didn't know. I don't know if any of you will find this interesting. If not, just keep washing your dish or whatever. Hair goes into shock after you cut it, especially if the scissors are really sharp. Now, I can't believe I just said this. I feel like I'm Joe Rogan peddling COVID-19 you know, information that's false, where he's like, it's actually not contagious, you know, or whatever the latest thing he said was. You know, he's already had to apologize twice on his new $100 million Spotify deal for spreading false information about things. I didn't know. I just heard it. And then I said it on the show. And and I'm sorry. I didn't. I just said it on the show. He's got the gentlest voice, by the way, for being this giant well, he's a short person, but like a big muscly MMA guy. Oh my God, all the MMA people that were harassing me this week because they're fans of Brian Callen. You're a liar, spelled L-I-R-E. Too many punches in the head, boys. Oh, so many male comedians are afraid of MMA fighters. I'm not. Do I want to get beat up by one? No. But there's always been a risk of violence for me being out in the world of male comedians. Rape, risk, rape, violence. I get death threats on the road when I spoke out about Louie. I get death threats on the road when I say I don't support Bernie. Risk of violence, yeah. I do my dumb job at the risk of violence. What am I, what am I a firefighter? I shouldn't have this kind of risk. And male comics. I'd like to speak out against comedy clubs book, booking alleged sexual assaulters, but their fans are crazy. Oh, yeah, I know. They've been... um sending death threats to women in the media and other women comics uh, for years. And we're not afraid. So nut up, gentlemen, nut the fuck up. You know, I beat a kid with a hockey stick when I was 10. I was born unafraid. Maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe it's Maybelline. Anyway, so what was I saying? The haircut. Oh, hair goes into shock. So you got to understand, I could not believe this. It sounded so stupid. I felt like on the other end of the spectrum, when people get mad at Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop stuff. Like that's not scientifically proven that you put that gel on your arm and it prevents cancer or whatever, whatever. Every once in a while, she peddles something that people get upset about. I go, I, I almost felt like, do I accept this information as true? Our hair goes into shock. And so I said, I, I have never heard this. Can you explain it to me? 
I've got a podcast to do. No, I didn't say that. But she said, uh, well, I still don't. She said, it, it just goes into shock. That's why if you get your hair cut and you come home for about a week, like you get your hair cut and they style it at the place, right? And you're like, oh, this looks great. And then once the style wears off, you know, like that night and then it's the next day, you're like, oh, my hair is unruly. What It, it looks weird. It's, it's, it's falling weird. It's settling weird. I hate this. And she's like, it's because your hair is in shock and it's kind of sticking. It's like tensing up and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And I just thought, oh, okay. I mean, it sounds plausible. And so I realized that's why sometimes after getting haircuts, I feel so like I hate it. But um, I'm Googling hair goes into shock after cut. Oh my God, this is the thing. Some people report that right after a trim or a major haircut, the ends of their hair tangles more easily and seems much thicker. That's not my problem is. Haircut shock usually lasts until the first shampoo right after the cut. Some have reported the effect lasting up to one week, but it generally never lasts longer than a few days. I guess this is a real thing. Just as plants or trees contemporarily go into shock after being pruned or cut back. That's what she told me. It's just like plants, but I didn't know that either. So I was like, is this one of those things that's like plants have feelings Hair may also respond in a similar fashion. Not all hair professionals agree with the idea since human hair is dead once it's left the scalp. However, however, others swear that it can and does happen. If you believe in the concept, hair shock can alter. I literally feel like I'm having a stroke on video. Like, I can't read suddenly. I think this light's way too bright. Um, some people report that right after a trim or major haircut. Okay, great. We got it. All right. Well, hair shock, is it a thing or is it not a thing? Discuss. The hot topics are coming out today. So, yeah, I didn't think I would go short again with my hair, but it appears that I have. And it feels right. I feel like bouncier. Some long hair weighs me down. It feels like clutter. Oh, I don't want that clutter. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast, is part of the Misfit Toys podcast collective started by Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap of Never Not Funny. Of course, check out their podcast, Never Not Funny. I've been a guest so many millions of times. Todd Glass, the Todd Glass Show. He is also part of the collective. And my God, do I love to go on my friend Todd Glass's show. So I went and did a TV taping this week. Oh my God, you said you would not go anywhere. You are my pandemic hero. And now you're going everywhere. Your haircut, your Hollywood things. You, I don't like you anymore. So I get this offer to do the game show 25 words or less. Have you guys seen this game show? Meredith Vieira hosts is very much like a password. So what you do is... You get five words, and you've got 
two people on your team. One is the other celebrity and then the regular person, the disgusting regular person from real life who's trying to win money who should never, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but the, the person, the contestant. So let's say I get my five words. I look at them and the words are computer, um, power cord. I feel like Trump in that camera, woman, man, uh, is it a pillow, lipstick, turtle. Okay, so those are my five words. And I have to make these people guess these words, one at a time, obviously, in a minute or 45 seconds. And I need to do that using 25 words or less. So how it kind of goes is you go, you, you kind of play it out in your head. Okay, well, if I say uh, computer, I would say MacBook MacBook, and they would go computer. So you go, okay, I think that's, I get that in one word. And then you think about pillow and you go bed, you know, and like, ooh, you've got to assume maybe they won't get it. So you might want to say lay your head on, you know, but that's four words. So you, you, you kind of divvy it up in your head. I think I can do this in 17 words. And then your opponent goes, they have the same words. Your opponent goes, I can do it in 14 words. You're like, fuck. So you have to re, you have to really think it through. It's not just guessing. You have to really know what your words are that you're going to play with. Because, you know, these people are trying to win $10,000. You know, this is, this is real. You want these people to win money. And so it was really fun. I mean, I love game shows. Now, I don't watch them and I don't feel like watching them, but I used to watch them obsessively and exclusively, I don't know what exclusively means, as a kid, you know, at least three, four a day. And I love those password ones. Oh, password is my favorite. And I loved the way I was like, I'm going to grow up and be on a game show and I'm going to sit in the chair just like Betty White and all those celebrities and I'm going to lean forward. Dog, cat, horse, things that go to the vet. Mm-mm. Uh not a stool. Things that have four legs. Yes. Bing. No, wait, that's the hustle. Whatever the $25,000 pyramid theme was. It's 25 words or less is very similar. So I get the offer and I think, oh, fuck. Here's where I have to really evaluate how I want to handle this pandemic. I mean, the one, see, now it's interesting that like, I felt so paranoid at the hair salon, but I don't feel paranoid on a studio lot. It's because networks and everyone involved has so much to lose if somebody gets sick that I know they're taking it seriously. And I just don't always think like the local hairdresser is taking it as seriously, especially when she's telling you that like, that she doesn't think it's that serious, you know, not the one I just went to see. Yeah, my hair's being weird. Um, so how it works is you drive up, park your car. It was at a, you know, a normal studio. And this is what happens anytime you do any kind of shows. One of the, uh, you know, it's like your producer for the day. They come, they give you your contracts to sign. They ask you, do you need anything? I'll get you a cup of tea. You want me to bring you a sweater? It's cold on set. You know, they, or they come to your trailer and go, come on, it's time to go that kind of thing. 
So this guy comes over, Joey. Hi. Okay, great. Then the wardrobe woman comes over. Everyone's in a mask. She takes my shirts because I'm doing multiple episodes. She's going to steam them for me. And then I'm led to my little trailer. Now uh, there's, you know, wipes everywhere. The real heavy duty. I mean, not even Clorox, like hospital wipes and hand sanitizer and more masks and this and that. But you get a COVID test. So then the nurse comes into the trailer. And she swabbed my nose, and it wasn't like going way far back up the nose. So then part of me is like, is this even a real test? <laughs> is this a good test? And it comes back 15 minutes later, not detected. I kind of freaked out because I was waiting for the word negative. But if you've had a COVID test, they they say not detected, which sounds like, well, what is that? Like, it was just a mind fuck for one half of us. But it was so weird because the the she came over to give me the results. And it was as though she was giving me positive results of something scandalous, like herpes or some venereal disease that's, like, embarrassing and you can only get from doing something embarrassing. You know, like, she came over very quietly, like, um, here are the results. Super serious face. Piece of paper folded. I'm like, oh, I have COVID. Like, I thought she was about to be like, you have COVID. We have to not throw everyone into a panic. So just come with me and you'll get in your car and you'll go straight to, I don't know, where would I go straight to? Home just to get sick and die. I don't know. So I go, oh my God, is it okay? And she's like still talking in her indoor voice. And she's like, opens the paper and shows it to me and it says not detected. And since it doesn't say negative, it just, I went, what does that mean? And she goes that it was negative. And I go, it says not detected. I thought it meant like, you know, inconclusive. We couldn't tell there's something wrong, but we don't think it's COVID. You know, I could, it was scaring the fuck out of me. And then she said, that means negative. I was like, oh, okay. So then, now what was interesting was, you know, then I get on the phone with the voiceover guy who's going to introduce me and say, and today on the show, Jen Kirkman, this guy was somewhere in Nashville. So he's just going to voice over in from wherever. Meredith Vieira herself was in New York, so she's not even really there. And there was a few people who did their jobs remotely, and I thought, I mean, not that you want to not live in Hollywood where you work, but... You, technically, with this guy's voiceover job, the announcer, you know, he's not on camera anyway. He could technically do it from anywhere. So I'm just, it's kind of interesting to see examples of things that can run where half of the people are remote. And I, and I kind of hope it stays that way. It Sets can be so overwhelming. There's so many people. There's so many people that make things possible. And, you know, normally there's, a lighting and a sound guy standing there next to you the whole time. Not on camera, but this time they couldn't have all those people in your little pod, as they called it. So the lights are already perfectly set up. The audio's there. They're checking it remotely. And it's just interesting. Oh, maybe you don't need to stand there the whole time then, you know? Or like, usually there's like 95 executives on a set like, hey, I'm Joe Schmo, and I'm just coming down from the network to see how things are because I don't want to be in my office or I don't want to be at home with the wife and kids or whatever. And then they're not around. It's just like less people. And it was great. And then at lunch, and usually there's catering and, you know, almost runs like a uh, a buffet, you know, and this was more like you stand in line six feet apart outside with a mask on 
and somebody with a mask and gloves on hands you a box lunch and you take it in your trailer. And that's what I liked too is when you do a show like that, even though I was so into it, you are on for 30 minutes and we did six of them. So it was like a 12 hour day. And, you know, you tape about 45 minutes, I'll edit it down. A lot of what they edit out is you thinking how many words you can do it in. Like there's, when you see it on the show, they're like, okay, and what do you bid? It goes a lot quicker, but you can actually take like five or 10 minutes and think it over. But, um, so what was I saying? Oh, so a lot less people on set. Everything was outside and under tents. And then you go actually onto the soundstage to film. And, you know, the hair and makeup people are there, but they want you to come hair and makeup ready so that they don't have to spend that much time with you. But they have shields on masks. Again, everyone in that thing tested negative that same day. So it, it gave me this feeling of comfort. But you're inside this giant soundstage. They kept the doors open, which is really weird. Normally with sound stages, these big giant doors, they close. If you've ever walked, if you've ever taken any kind of studio tour, and you see a soundstage and there's that like kind of red, looks like a fire alarm whirling light outside. That means don't come in. We're filming. You'll fuck up the sound. But this didn't have that. The door was open. And uh, once you went inside, there were black curtains hanging that would create these little four-walled rooms in a way. They kept saying pods. You're going to be in a pod. So I pictured like an egg-shaped thing like from Mork and Mindy. <laughs> I'm so literal, you know. And uh, But it was just four black curtains. And then the lighting was fantastic. And they had a background. Everyone's background was the same. So it looks like you're on this set. It was all very interesting. But what I liked about it was, oh, so what I was saying, you have to be on. You know, it's like smiling and like, okay, and doing the thing. And it can be just exhausting. It's just like a lot to be on on camera, with sucking your soul out of you. And during lunch, I usually like to be quiet, but there's some, you know, people are like hyped up and gregarious and you're with other people. And uh, I was on with people that I knew. And like, it's not that I don't like them. I just didn't feel like it was like too much. Like I I just want to eat by myself. So you have to because there's no communal tables and eating together. So that I kind of liked. There's this like half world that kind of works for an introvert extrovert like myself and and a germ phobe. You know, nor the, oh, do you know what I loved? You get on set, I met about one, two, three, four, about eight people, ten people, and nobody shook hands. In the past, it would have been immediately nice to meet you. You don't need to touch someone's hand, the most intimate part of the body. I'm not kidding. I'd rather touch someone's balls or bum cheek when I first meet them, because that's not going to have the same kind of flu virus germs that a hand does. And then you're not going to be able to wash your hands immediately, and you're going to forget, and you're going to touch your mouth or touch your face, and now you've got the flu. So I really just love this post-handshake world. I hope it... And and it was interesting, like, I, I noticed the urge, or like, I noticed the absence of the handshake, where it's like, oh, this is normally where we would shake hands, but it didn't feel rude, because it's not rude not to shake hands. And y'all know me, I've been railing about it on this podcast, and if you're new to this podcast, you're like, she rails about handshaking, I gotta find those episodes, this, this girl is no fun, I love it. 
So there you go. That was my experience with uh, getting back out there into the world. And it certainly didn't feel like I was getting back to normal. It felt strange. Because it is strange. But I'm okay with that for now. I'm okay. I'm not okay with there not being a vaccine yet, which I know would be too early anyway. I'm not okay with how it was handled. I'm not okay with any of that. But I am okay with how it has changed a few things that, again, benefit an introverted extrovert like myself. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So changing topics here. Don't forget again, patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. $5 a month gets you four videos, one 20-minute bonus episode. And I throw in like stand-up clips from me on the road that you've not heard anywhere else. I would really appreciate you joining up. You can follow the podcast at Jen Kirkman Podcast on Instagram. And um, I believe it's also the same on Twitter, at Jen Kirkman Pod or at Jen Kirkman Podcast. And I encourage you all to buy some merchandise because all of the earnings that I make go to fundthefrontlines.org, which is an organization that helps healthcare workers get the PPE that they so desperately need. We've given them uh, over $3,000 already this summer. I'm really proud of that. I have mugs and t-shirts and hoodies and onesies and pillows and tote bags and cell phone cases and notebooks. And I have a lot of my own merch. Um, everyone here in, that's watching on the uh, Patreon can see my pillow. It says Feminist AF. And under the AF, it says End Fun. <laughs> I've got my Girls Will Be Girls pin here. That's a great one. That's from a, and an, you know, those come in uh, t-shirts and notebooks. That's from uh, that story I told when I was 10 years old. These boys would physically bully me, and the uh, principals and teachers did nothing about it. They said, boys will be boys. And when I told my teacher about it, she said, oh, just stop. Boys will be boys. And so I took a hockey stick and retaliated against one of my bullies, and I got in trouble. And I said, girls will be girls. Did I really say that when I was 10? Probably not. But in my story, I did. And then I've got great merchandise that says women are literally humans. It kind of looks very 70s. I've got a really cool mug. It's in that 70s bubble writing. And it's like orange, brown, yellow, and white kind of rainbow. It's super cool. I've got a rich bitch mug. That's an old story. That's a real old story. <laughs> One of my friend's family members called me a rich bitch on Facebook. It was some political discussion, and she's, I don't even know, you Hollywood Obama-loving rich bitch. I was like, what? We weren't even talking about, I don't even know. Oh, anyway, so there's that. 
So, uh, some listener emails here. I was asking, I've always talked, I've often talked about, I actually think my, it might've been in one of the bonus episodes about how I used to help my dad, who's a greenskeeper on a golf course, help him fill the beer machine at night on the golf course. Cause there was a beer machine outside and a cigarette machine. And I just remember thinking you could, there used to just be cigarette machines. You'd put money in it and you'd pull really hard on this lever and your cigarettes would come up. So I asked my dad, were those just out and about for like anyone of any age to, to play with? My dad said, yeah, the cigarette machine was used mostly by members of the golf club. It broke down a lot. And we finally got rid of it. It was in the men's locker room. I remember it being right when you walked in. Because why would I have been in the men's locker room? Oh, yeah, the junior members did use the beer machine anytime they could. I used to disable the mechanism so it could not be used. I finally convinced the club that we would be liable for serving minors. <laughs> Golf clubs sound like comedy clubs. They really don't give a shit, do they? So let me just get this out of the way. So as many of you know, my name is out there in the media because Brian Callen thinks that I am trying to destroy him when I'm just trying to have a conversation with comedy clubs about the rape culture. And I know people don't like that term because it makes them nervous. It sounds like some kind of political correctness, social justice warrior bullshit. What does that mean, rape culture? So Brian asked me on Twitter, why don't you come on my podcast and talk to me about this? <laughs> I don't have to talk to anyone about anything. And my answer is no, I do not go into soundproof rooms with people who've been accused of rape. Also, I don't like your podcast. I'm not coming on it. And third, I don't have to talk to anyone about anything. I didn't do anything fucking wrong. I'm just tweeting that I don't think clubs realize when they book people with credible sexual assault allegations, and now let's just stop focusing on Brian, but anybody, that it makes women feel like they don't matter. Women are huge, huge. And it doesn't matter. I believe the guy. I don't believe the guy. People want to pay to see him. Then they can figure out a way he can go play his own theater. Comedy clubs there's a lot of non-consent that goes on in comedy clubs. A lot of people win free tickets, they come see you, or they just go comedy. I don't know who this guy is. Or waitresses that maybe feel uncomfortable with it, or the opening act. Listen, it is insane to think of someone that may have committed a crime. I know it seems unfair, but what if someone's lying? Yeah, well, life is unfair and it'll all come out in the wash. But usually these things are not made up. The amount of made-up things are very small. There have been some. Oh, I know. I know people who've had stuff made up against them. But if there's a pattern, and especially if people's material is about rape, I mean, that this is the whole thing is male comedians joke about rape so much, and that's part of rape culture. Why is this funny to them? They are not the victim. I know men can be victims of rape, but... I don't have the words for it, but it's like me and the women understand it. But there's just been so, you know, I'll give you an example. I was playing this club. I think it was uh, the Comedy Zone in, in Charlotte, North Carolina years ago during the whole like Bill Cosby's getting called out now, even though he already was years ago. I actually was someone that didn't know the rape rumors. But then everyone was coming forward. He drugged me. He raped me. It was so obvious. It was real. 
These women didn't want that kind of attention. Are you crazy? You think any of us want this? And I'm at this comedy club and I'm backstage, you know, with the owner of the club. He's sitting in the green room with us. I'm the only woman. It's usually how it is. See, when you're the only woman, you don't feel like you have any power. Like if you're, imagine if you were just a guy and every time you did a show, it was only women. You'd feel weird. You'd be like, I don't have one of my people with me, you know? So you're prone to react differently to things so that you don't get shouted down or yelled at or God forbid hurt. So sometimes we do just go along with things to protect ourselves. But if there's two or more of us, it's an equal playing field. And that's why they don't let two or more of us in the room at the same time, which is why when you get a little bit of power and success, you can make that change. And I have done that and I'll explain in a minute. But I'm sitting uh, in the green room and there's three books on the bookshelf. They're all Bill Cosby books. One is a Woody Allen book. It seems very pointed that those are the only books on the bookshelf. And I was there on a book tour and I said, I'm going to add my books to this bookshelf. And the club owner said, no, 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 leave that. That's a display. I'm sending a message. I mean, he just said the quiet part out loud. He goes, these women are just looking, they're looking for attention. And so what? He's a big famous guy. Like they probably wanted it. So it was like all kinds of things. Like, yes, he raped them, but they wanted it and they're all making it up. And so I'm sitting here with a man who booked me, you know, to perform And this is what he thinks. And he's saying it to my face. It's like if you had a black person that you booked and you were like, listen, the cops should shoot black people in the streets. We all know they're up to no good, these black people. For some reason, it's so much more stark when you put it in terms of race. It's like, oh, yeah, that. but we don't look at sexism the same way. And God forbid what it must be like to be a black woman. So I'm sitting there and all the guys are like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. And I just, I'm not having fun anymore because I'm thinking about all the times that I wasn't believed. This kid did this to me or I've been assaulted. I've not been raped, thank God. But yeah, I've been sexually assaulted at jobs. The video store that I loved working at, I had to quit because the creep that worked there. Who let himself into my house? I was just in my apartment. He he knew where I lived because I lived around the corner. And the door was unlocked. I lived in this um, apartment in Beacon Hill, Boston, which sounds fancy, and it is, but the apartments we lived in were like not the fancy ones. Uh, Basically, this is actually true. Like in Boston, in Beacon Hill, like the really fancy brownstones have little tiny parts attached to them. And those would be like the servants' quarters. And it's like where students, you know, would live. So I lived in like a, you know, four-room apartment with two other girls. And and uh, so on the street outside, the, you'd open the door and then walk up these stairs and into our apartment. And for some reason, both my doors were unlocked. just like the middle of the day. And all of a sudden, this guy I worked with at the video store, I think his name was Adam, was in my kitchen. I was like, Jesus. And he's like, come on, like, you know, there's something going on between us. And I was like, no, like this guy had a crush on me. I thought he was disgusting. I think also I had a boyfriend. I don't remember. Not that that at all should matter. But yeah, he... He just kind of started to force himself on me. And I was like, if you don't get out of here, I will kill you. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to tell everybody. And then he ran out. Not everyone gets that lucky. But he was like a small wimp. Lots of things have happened like that. It just, but the, for me in comedy, it was, you know, Louis grabbing me by the neck that time and going, I'm going to fuck you. Like after he had a really good set, like why 
Why did my friend whisper that to me? And I just kind of let it go. You know, just little things where it's like, but then it's like the other aggressions, like all the nerds, like doing their nerd stuff and like training their fans what to laugh at. And then their fans don't laugh at women's stuff. And they never even notice like, how come the women are getting no laughs? It's not because we're not funny. It's because you're just talking to a room full of boys about Star Wars, but you don't have anything else in your set that would indicate women or people. Like you kind of got to train people. I don't, it's a bigger conversation, but just the whole thing. So when clubs are like, look, people can decide if they want to see them or not. It's like, yeah, well, there's always going to be an audience for something. People still get torches and march in Charlottesville yelling, Jews will not replace us. Yeah, there's an audience for everything. But the club should be the one setting the standards of what they want to represent. But they all fall back on, look, people want to pay for it, we'll do it. Well, what if a bunch of, what if I wanted to perform illegal abortions on stage? What? People want to pay for it. It can't even be discussed with the clubs because they technically don't think any of the stuff these guys are accused of is wrong. They just don't. They don't get it. If they have at all canceled anyone's dates, it's because of the, they just don't want to be annoyed on Twitter. Nobody really understands or cares about us. They just don't. And so what I'm doing is realizing that comedy is disgusting and it always has been. I don't miss the culture of performing at clubs at all. I'm happy as can be. But what I realized is I didn't realize how bad the sexism still was because I was in my own little bubble for a couple of years, not a rich or famous bubble, just a loner bubble going around the country. Club owner is nice to me. I'm making them fucking money, you know? Or sometimes I'd bypass the club altogether, do a little theater. I used to have a no straight white guy rule for people that would open up for me. Not because I hate straight white guys. Some of them are my, be- my best friends. It's just because they get a lot of chances. And I wanted to bring people on stage that don't normally get chances. And I want people to be able to laugh at someone who's a different race or trans or gay or something and realize like, oh, yeah, we're all we're all people. And so... That's what I do. And I just didn't realize until these young girls started telling me all over the country that when they do shows with these guys, guys their own age, young guys, that they bring them up by being like, I'd fuck her. They make rape jokes all the time. They are sexually assaulting them. I was like, wait, what? Because I came up on the scene with like Eugene Merman and really nice guys that most of them are out of uh, stand up now, but they write on late night shows. And I dated a lot of these guys and they were just such wonderful people. And it was the 90s and it was just like, wait, what? And we all hated sexism. And then I had I had sexist experiences in comedy, but outside of my little alternative scene. And then all the scenes started to meld together again, kind of like when the jocks found out about Nirvana. And uh, there I was, not knowing how bad it had gotten again for the girls. And so I fight for them. Even if I'm not going to be in comedy anymore for some reason, I'm not going to leave that place the way it is. Fuck no. This is this is interesting to me. This is this is something I want to help change. And maybe it's not changeable, but I want to try. It's worth the effort. It's worth educating people about. And I'm so unimpressed with the male comedians I know that won't say anything, which is most of them. And ask your heroes why. Why don't you care? It's again not about Brian or anyone getting booked. It's why don't they care about the message they send because they book tons of sexual assaulters. There's so many people yet to come out that I hear rumors about, but I'm not going to say the rumors on air. I did that with Louie. I got fucked for four years, you know, because I don't know if 
the rumors I've heard about other people are true. So they'll come out in due time. Nobody's mad at me for not doing that. In terms of people being like, you owe it to the women. No, that's not how it works. But I do owe it to the women to try to make it a better place than I left it. And uh, I feel very passionate about that. And I do feel a little smug about it over the guys because the guys are afraid. And I'm not afraid. They're afraid of Joe Rogan. They're afraid of MMA fighters. They're afraid of not being liked. They're afraid of their own stuff coming up, even if it's nothing. But they don't know because they haven't bothered to learn the difference between maybe something they've done and something that's actually illegal or egregious or morally wrong. They just... And I'm just tired of their laziness. You know, I'm tired of it. I won't deal with it anymore. And, uh, you know, I know this isn't very, what's the word, articulate? Certainly isn't. Oh, my battery exhausted on my camera. Okay, that's good to know. So we've learned something here today, folks, that I need to keep my battery plugged in. So if you're watching this, it's because I was recording it on my phone. So this is the second half. So sorry about that. Sorry, this is a Patreon moment. A moment in Patreon history when the camera crapped out and Jen learned a lesson. So there you go. I'm here for the women and the gays and everyone who's been bullied their whole lives. I'm here to teach the men. I don't care if I make enemies. Those are the right kind of enemies to have. And I'm so tired of how the jocks have taken over comedy and how they somehow won. And I always say, you know, to people, I saw Nirvana. It always comes back to Nirvana or 9-11, doesn't it? Kurt Cobain was my height and 20 pounds lighter than me. And he spent his whole life getting beaten up. And when he got famous, and it turned out that the very types that beat him up loved his music, he could not believe it. And he didn't just go, oh, awesome. He spent his career fucking with them. He would start things with Axl Rose. He wasn't afraid. Now, obviously, he was quite self-destructive, as we've learned. But that's okay. It still doesn't take away from the fact that he wasn't afraid. Or he, he I'm sure, felt fear. But uh, he did the right thing. He brought women bands on tour with him. And he's playing an arena at the height of his fame. I mean, you don't get more famous than being the number one band in the world. And you're playing an arena. And he's stopping the show like every five minutes because the jocks in the front row are groping the women. And the lights are in his eyes and there's thousands of people screaming. He might even be high out of his mind, too. I don't know what else is going on in that, in that man. And he's still in an arena getting the love. Manages to think about other people and the well-being of women. And stops it. And waits. I, he's like, I'll wait. And waited for them to get kicked out. N male comedians don't have those kind of balls or values. You know, we can, we can say all we want that male comedians don't have the balls. But what really is heartbreaking is they don't have the values. And, you know, we've all been guilty of this. 
just because someone was a nerd or a geek or an outcast or a fat kid or liked Star Wars or is kind of weird or is kind of intellectual, we've given them qualities they don't have. Oh, that must mean they're on our side. No, they're on their side because they weren't actually real outcasts in any way. They weren't gay, lesbian. They weren't black. They weren't women. They were guys who weren't cool. And so they created their own cool. That's not an outcast. That's just a plain old dork. And they never learned how to treat women either. They hated women because women didn't like them. God forbid women didn't like dorks. Some women do. Some women don't. What, what kind of women do the guys like? Do they like dorks? Or do they have pictures of models in their wall? Don't fuck around. So anyway, <laughs> I don't know what my point is. My point is that this tiny little man who's wearing a dress to fuck with his audience, you know, he liked to fuck with his audience. I mean, you could argue, well, he's got such a big audience he can afford to, sure. But there's just something in him and in his spirit that I don't see in male comedians. And I I actually thought I was entering a community that was going to be like that. And I was so wrong. And it's just heartbreaking. And then you realize, God, there really was only one him in a way, you know, like, I don't know. I really came up in a world with him being such, like, I'm joking when I'm like, oh, it always comes back to Nirvana, but I'm actually really serious. He was a big, Kurt Cobain was a big part of my life in some very formative years. And I really thought all men would kind of end up being like that. I really did. And it's like the year that you finally accept that they're not, and that they're not even going to be a more decent version of their flawed selves because they just don't care. It's tragic. And some days I'm mad about it, and some days I'm sad about it, and some days I don't even need to bother myself, bother myself with them, and, you know, us girls and gays will take it from here. And But it's, it's really sad. And that's honestly what I feel like speaking about is the guys that are silent. So I'm I'm working behind the scenes to formulate what I want to do about that. You know, shooting each rapist one by one doesn't solve the problem. I don't mean actually shooting, you know what I mean? And I don't care. And I know I just said rapist and not alleged, but I didn't say names. I'm just saying... So, all right. Let's read a couple listener emails. Then I want to read you this article. I don't know why I find this article interesting. I hope you do too. Jenna. Where are the goddamn listener emails? Dear Jen, I'm a longtime fan. I just want to let you know that your podcast has been a real bright spot in my year. Oh, my God. You must have had a terrible year if this fucking depressing podcast has been a bright spot. And that listening to you sing along to Alanis Morissette songs on that episode was wonderful. Your voice sounded pitch perfect to me. And I just loved you sharing that with your listeners. That was special. Thanks. And please don't say my name. Well, wait a minute. I get You tell me I'm perfect pitch with a voice like Alanis Morissette and I'm not allowed to say your name? People are going to think I'm making this up. It's a real person. You can hear it. I printed it out even. 
No, I did not write it myself. Oh my God. You know, guys, let's, let's give a shout out to my Patreon member of the week, Derek Malore, subscriber at the $35 level and above. You get a shout out from me. And I talk about how we're best friends. So yeah, Derek and I met, oh God, when was this? Uh, it must have been, I think, 1991. And it was actually at a Nirvana concert. And I saw this guy and I thought he was a roadie. And I said, hey, 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 can you get me um, a piece of the guitar? You know, after they smash their guitars, will you give me a piece of it? And he was like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do that. And then uh, after the show, I, I found him again. I'm like, hey, roadie, can I get a piece of the guitar? And then he was like, Okay, I'm not a roadie. And I was like, well, why did you say you were? I got my hopes up that I was going to get a piece of the guitar. He's like, I just thought you were a crazy person. I wanted to make you go away. And I was like, oh. And I'm like, well, why are you dressed like a roadie? He's like, so that people think I'm a roadie. I go, well, that doesn't make any sense. He goes, I'm, he's like, I'm reading this book about manifest what you want, you know, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And I go, oh, okay. Well, I hope it works out. So, you know, this is before email. So we had no way of keeping in touch. And, uh, about 10 years later, I see him at a uh, Barry Manilow concert. You know, I'm front row and I go, hey, is that that guy? And he's dressed like a roadie. And I go, Derek, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, you're still dressing for the job that you want. Good for you. I hope someday you make it. He goes, no, no, I'm actually a roadie. I'm a roadie for Barry Manilow. I go, Barry Manilow has roadies? And Derek is like, oh, hells yeah, girl. He's like, come on backstage. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not like a backstage kind of person. I, I know what it's like, and I don't want to annoy uh, Barry. And Derek's like, no, 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 he'll love it. So Derek takes me backstage with him and Barry Manilow. Now, Derek and Barry are like best friends. And, you know, Derek is, uh, I mean, I think Barry's treating him terribly. Like Derek's like ironing his shirt and Barry's yelling at him like, no, 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 I want it crisper, crisper. And Derek's like, uh, Jen, he's not normally like this. And like Barry's not even acknowledging that I'm there, you know. And so I just said to Derek, why do you let Barry treat you this way? And he was like, well, because Barry saved my life once. I was uh, walking down some train tracks and Barry was uh, there. He, you know, often would practice singing alone on train tracks. He, he got shy about his voice. He didn't like to rehearse and have anyone hear him. So he would sing on train tracks. And then he saw me and I was wearing my headphones so loud. I didn't hear this train coming. And Barry pushed me out of the way of the train, almost getting killed himself. And I said, uh, whatever you need, I'm indebted to you. And he was like, well, you can be my butler for life. And I was like, Derek, so you're his butler. You're still not a roadie. And he's like, all right, you got me. I just, he says I'm allowed to dress like a roadie so I can feel tough, but I'm Barry Manilow's butler for life because he saved my life. I'm like, this sounds like a sitcom. You know, we should work on this together. So I wrote so many drafts of this sitcom. And then Derek told me I had to, uh, give up the dream because Barry would never let this happen. I said, well, we can say it's about someone else. And uh, uh, it was terrible. Derek ended up, Derek and Barry ended up suing me to try to stop the project. And, you know, when, when a friend sues you, it's kind of hard to stay friends after that. But then I saw Derek's name once, Derek Malora, on my Patreon. And I was like, hey, are you the Derek that used to be Barry Manilow's butler for life? And you sued me once. And he was like, yeah, I feel bad about it. So that's why I joined your Patreon. I was like, oh my God. So we're back in touch, totally friends. I guess he's no longer Barry's butler for life. Barry was like, you know what? It's been a long enough time. And Derek thinks it's because he accidentally burned a hole in one of Barry's shirts. And Barry was like, why do I have a butler that sucks at this? So anyway, 
thank you for being a Patreon and anyone else who is a Patreon. I, I salute you. I support you. I, I thank you for supporting me. Now let's finish up with this article. I don't know why I love this. And maybe you guys, I get a lot of emails from people going, here's my script. Here's an idea. Now, you cannot send unsolicited scripts to writers. It is not legal. I cannot read scripts unless it is submitted to me by an agent and that writer is in the Writers Guild. It's a union. It's got rules. That's the deal. Um, I think people have very lo- people waste their time a lot in this business. They write a script and then they contact someone. Like I get a lot of people like, I love your work on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm like, well, I quit two years ago and I'm not a producer. So I can't help you with anything, even if I still work there. You know, I want you to produce this thing for me. It's like, honey, I'm trying to produce my own thing based on the fact that I wrote on a hit show. Like, no one can help you. You've got, this is not how anything works. And so, but a lot of times I will have family members be like, oh, can I give your number to my friend's son? You know, he wants to know how to get in the business. And I'm like, no. Oh, he has a thing he wants you to read. No. And it's like, you feel like such a dick, but this is kind of how how um, it's explained. And the reason I got reacquainted with this article, because this is from 2009, is Maria Bamford has this amazing audiobook on Audible called You Are a Comedy Special. And it's sort of a self-help book about how to put together a one-hour comedy routine. And But it's really a memoir of, of her trials and tribulations. It's fantastic. But she mentions this article. And I was like, oh my God, I have to revisit this article. So I did. Um, it's called I Will Not Read Your Fucking Script. It's by Josh Olson. I forget where it originally was printed. But I'm going to read it too. I don't know. I just find this fun. And then after I read this, I'm just going to say until next week, have fun. So if you don't want to hear it, then you can stop listening now. Um, We know you've been very... Okay. He wrote a history of violence. Screenwriter Josh Olson. I will not read your fucking script. That's simple enough, isn't it? I will not read your fucking script. What's not clear about that? There's nothing personal about it. Nothing loaded. Nothing complicated. I simply have no interest in reading your fucking screenplay. None whatsoever. If that seems unfair, I'll make you a deal. In return for you not asking me to read your fucking script, I will not ask you to wash my fucking car or take my fucking picture or represent me in fucking court or take out my fucking gallbladder or whatever the fuck it is that you do for a living. Oh, this was originally in the Village Voice. Rest in peace, You're a lovely person. Whatever time we've spent together has, I'm sure, been... uh, I don't know, the word cuts off. Yes, we bonded. And yes, I wish you luck in all your endeavors. And it would thrill me to no end to hear that you had sold your screenplay and that it had been made into the best movie since Godfather Part 2. But I will not read your fucking script. At this point, you should walk away firm in your conviction that I'm a dick. But if you're interested in growing as a human being and recognizing that it is, in fact, you who are the dick in this situation, please read on. That's right. I called you a dick because you created this situation. You put me in this spot where my only option is to acquiesce to your demands or be the bad guy. That, my friend, is the very definition of a dick move. I was recently cornered by a young man of my barest acquaintance. I doubt we've exchanged a hundred words, but he's dating someone I know, and he cornered me in the right place at the right time and asked me to read a two-page synopsis for a script he'd been working on for the last year. He was submitting the synopsis to some contest or program and wanted to get a professional opinion. Now, I normally have a standard response to people who ask me to read their scripts, and it's the simple truth. I have two piles next to my bed. One is scripts from good friends, and the other is manuscripts and books and scripts my agents have sent to me that I have to read for work. Every time I pick up a friend's script, I feel guilty that I'm ignoring work. 
Every time I pick up something from the other pile, I feel guilty that I'm ignoring my friends. If I read yours before any of that, I'd be an awful person. Most people get that. But sometimes you find yourself in a situation where the guilt factor is really high or someone plays on a relationship or perceived obligation and it's hard to escape without seeming rude. Then I'll tell them I'll read it, but if I can put it down after 10 pages, I will. They always go for that because nobody ever believes you can put their script down once you start. But hell, this was a two-page synopsis and there was no time to go into either song or dance and it was just easier to take it. How long can two pages take to read? Weeks is the answer. And this is why I will not read your fucking script. It rarely takes more than a page to recognize that you're in the presence of someone who can write, but it only takes a sentence to know you're dealing with someone who can't. By the way, here's a simple way to find out if you're a writer. If you disagree with that statement, you're not a writer because you see writers are also readers. You may want to allow for the fact that this fellow had never written a synopsis before, but that doesn't excuse the inability to form a decent sentence or an utter lack of faculty facility with language and structure. The story described was clearly of great importance to him, but he had done nothing to convey its specifics to an impartial reader. What I was handed was essentially a barely coherent list of events, some connected, some not so much. Characters wander around aimlessly, do things for no reason, vanish, reappear, get arrested for unnamed crimes, and make wild, life-altering decisions for no reason. Half a paragraph is devoted to describing the smell and texture of a piece of food, but the climactic central event of the film is glossed over in a sentence. The death of the hero is not even mentioned. One sentence describes a scene he's in, the next describes people showing up at his funeral. I could go on, but I won't. This is the sort of thing that would earn you a D- in any freshman comp class. Which brings us to an ugly truth about many aspiring screenwriters. They think that screenwriting doesn't actually require the ability to write, just the ability to come up with a cool story that would make a cool movie. Screenwriting is widely regarded as the easiest way to break into the movie business because it doesn't require any kind of training, skill, or equipment. Everybody can write, right? And because they believe that, they don't regard working screenwriters with any kind of real respect. They will hand you a piece of inept writing without a second thought because you do not have to be a writer to be a screenwriter. So I read the thing and it hurt, man. It really hurt. I was dying to find something positive to say and there was nothing. And the truth is saying something positive about this thing would be the nastiest, meanest, and most dishonest thing I could do. But here's the thing. Not only is it cruel to encourage the hopeless, but you cannot discourage a writer. If someone can talk you out of being a writer, you're not a writer. If I can talk you out of being a writer, I've done you a favor because now you'll be free to pursue your real talent, whatever that may be. And for the record, Everybody has one. The lucky ones figure out what that is. The unlucky ones keep on writing shitty screenplays and asking me to read them. To make matters worse, this guy and his girlfriend had begged me to be honest with him. He was frustrated by the responses he'd gotten from friends because he felt they were going easy on him and he wanted real criticism. They never do, of course. What they want is a few tough notes to give the illusion of honesty and then some pats on the head. What they want always is encouragement, even when they shouldn't get any. Do you have any idea how hard it is to tell someone that they've spent a year wasting their time? Do you know how much blood and sweat goes into that criticism? Because you want to tell the truth, but you want to make absolutely certain that it comes across honestly and without cruelty. I did more rewrites on that fucking email than I did on my last three studio projects. 
My first draft was ridiculous. I started with specific notes and after a while found I'd written three pages on the first two paragraphs. That wasn't the right approach, so I tossed it. And by the time I was done, I'd come up with something that was relatively brief, to the point, and considerate as hell. The main point I made was that he'd fallen prey to a fallacy that nails a lot of first-time writers. He was way more interested in telling his one story than in being a writer. It was like buying all the parts to a car and starting to build it before learning the basics of auto mechanics. You'll learn a lot along the way, I said, but you'll never have a car that runs. I should mention that while I was composing my response, he pulled the ultimate amateur move and sent me an email saying, if you haven't read it yet, don't. I have a new draft. Read this. In other words, the draft I told you was ready for professional input wasn't, actually. I advised him that if he at all was interested I advised him that if all he was interested in was this story, he should find a writer and work with him. Or if he really wanted to be a writer, start at the beginning and take some classes and start studying seriously. And you know what? I shouldn't have bothered because for all the hair I pulled out, for all the weight and seriousness I gave his request for a real professional critique, his response was a terse, thanks for your opinion. And the inevitable fallout a week later A mutual friend asked me, what's this dick move I hear you pulled on what's-his-name? So now this guy and his girlfriend think I'm an asshole, and the truth of the matter is, the story really ended the moment he handed me the goddamn synopsis. Because if I just said no, then and there, they'd still think I'm an asshole. Only difference is, I wouldn't have to spend all that time trying to communicate thoughtfully and honestly with someone who just wanted a pat on the head. And more importantly, I wouldn't have had to read that god-awful piece of shit. (laughs) You're not owed a read from a professional, even if you think you have an in, and even if you think it's not a huge imposition. That's not your choice to make. This needs to be clear. When you ask a professional for their take on your material, you're not just asking them to take an hour or two out of their life. You're asking them to give you, for free, the acquired knowledge, insight, and skill of years of work. It is no different than asking your friend the house painter to paint your living room during his off hours. There's a great story about Pablo Picasso. Some guy told Picasso he'd pay him to draw a picture on a napkin. Picasso whipped out a pen and banged out a sketch, handed it to the guy, and said, One million dollars, please. A million dollars, the guy exclaimed. That only took you 30 seconds. Yes, said Picasso, but it took me 50 years to learn how to draw that in 30 seconds. Like the cad who asks the professional for a free read, the guy simply didn't have enough respect for the artist to think about what he was asking for. If you think it's only about the time, then ask one of your non-writer friends to read it. How they might even enjoy your script. They might look upon you with a newfound respect. It could even come to pass that they'll call up a friend in the movie business and help you sell it. And soon, all of your dreams will come true. But me, I will not read your fucking script. Until next week, have fun.